Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Prine here, and welcome to Doc Talks. This again is another episode where we're gonna kind of get out of the usual and um, have a conversation today with a friend, Matthew. Pi- is it Pfeiffer? Is that Pfeiffer? Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, how many times does somebody say that wrong? Uh, you know what? Um, it, it happens from time to time. Usually, I get Pfeiffer instead of Pfeiffer. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, you know, Pfeffer may not be a bad thing. You've probably heard um, the Bible says that uh, where two or three are, are gathered, that Jesus is in the midst. Yeah, well, absolutely. in the Catholic Bible, it says where two or three ca- or three or four Catholics are together, there's usually a fifth. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. The fifth, yeah. <laughs> That's a, a bad so joke. Yeah, no, you're fine. <laughs> so. I have kind of dubbed you as the narcissist expert. Most of your content on Instagram and on TikTok are about narcissists and how to, you know, leave relationships, how to protect relationships, uh, set boundaries and those kind of things. And so I I think, though, and, and you may agree or disagree, but I think socially we have kind of expanded the definition of narcissist to include people who may not really be narcissist. I agree with that. We talk about, you know, I, I, when I talk on TikTok or other videos, other platforms, you know, I use the term narcissism quite often. When I first got started, I really talked more. I didn't even use the word narcissism. I really started, I really just talked about toxic relationships, but yes, it, it can be expanded or quite often times people do expand it, but a lot of times when we're talking about narcissism, when we're talking about some of the behaviors, some of those things cross over to other uh, disorders on the cluster B spectrum. And then we also have to talk about, um, and I go a lot more in depth with people I work with in one-on-one or in in my groups, that uh, yes, every single person has narcissistic tendencies, has narcissistic qualities, and every single one of us, you, I, we all have a, what, what I call a, what I'm sure everyone calls a healthy level of narcissism. And we, but we have to understand what that means. Why do we have a healthy level of narcissism? We all need it for times when things are rough, when we lose our job, when we lose, you know, a loved one, when we're not feeling well, we have to make everything all about ourselves for a period of time until we heal, until we get back on our feet. And so uh, sometimes, yes, that, that can, uh, those type of things can get expanded into different conversations, whether it be on TikTok, Instagram, or, or other platforms as well. Right. What, what I have found is, you know, there may be a female in a relationship and the boyfriend says, well, you need to do this and you need to do that and two or three things. And then all of a sudden the girlfriend doesn't like to be controlled. And then they say, well, he's a narcissist. And I think that maybe we are using the term narcissist too loosely sometimes within a social construct. 
I actually did counseling with a man and a woman who were married. They'd been married for like 16 years. He had had an affair like 14 times in the 16 years with 14 different women. And so they contacted me for for marriage counseling. She's like, he's a narcissist. He does what he wants to do. He, you know, this, 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 and this. And about the fourth or fifth session, I found that he wasn't a narcissist. She was. Yeah. And and so it, it's amazing, though, that sometimes it is the narcissist who is the one who is trying to get into therapy to get a therapist to validate their narcissism. Ha, have Absolutely. you had that kind of issue? With what I do and how I operate, I have not. Uh, let me let me take that back. Every, every once in a while, I will have someone that will want me to, and I don't testify in court, but uh, they'll want me to testify in court. Um, but it's very, typically I can kind of see it because it's not someone that I've worked with on a regular basis. They're very vague with, with a lot of the, the, the story, with a lot of the things that, that have happened on their end. Yes, I do see it from time to time. I also see a lot of people who are on the opposite end. So the person in your story, the person who has cheated, they think that they are a narcissist and they may come to me and, and for their own validation, like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I can't stop cheating. You know, I don't like being in, in this marriage. And, you know, because yes, narcissist, it is common for narcissists to cheat, but um, that's not a precursor to narcissism. That's not something that, you know, it, it's common, but that's not something that is even looked at to, uh, because even the victim might also cheat as well infidelity is all over the spectrum. I think I tell people that it's a part of the story. For every single person, infidelity is very, very different. Um, there's some people that, for lack of better terms, they, they just kind of fall victim to it because they've been stagnant in the relationship for a while. Some people, it's like the worst time in their life. Some people, they don't regret it, not even a bit, because it, because it opens their eyes to what the relationship actually is. And so, but yes, um, I, I typically deal with the victim who is wondering, who's kind of confused about what's going on. Why, why do I feel this way? Why am I making these mistakes? Am I the toxic one? Am I the narcissist? And, and, and so on. Do you know what the dead giveaway was in, in that particular instance? I'm going to take a wild guess. Once you started to hold her to hold her accountable, all of a sudden the, she hit the eject button, didn't want to come back. Yes, she. it ended in a blasting of me telling me that I was a horrible person, that I should have talked her husband into quit having these affairs. But I figured out she was a narcissist when, when she told me that she required her husband to take a polygraph exam every month. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't take it, that she would go to the bank and take his name off of everything so he had no access to money. And I'm like, how is that even okay? Right. You know, how can you justify that being okay? And, you know, first of all, I wouldn't be taking a polygraph even if I was cheating. If if that level of trust has been broken, then the relationship's over in my exactly. mind. So for the benefit of the listeners, what are some key signs that, that you may be in a relationship with a narcissist? Uh, number one, by far and away, when you... Uh, I always tell people that the very, very first step is you have to begin to assert self-love. You have to be, begin to uh, start within, 
in terms of setting boundaries, not fearing conflict, but embracing conflict. Tell people that you have to begin to speak up for yourself at the very least. For some people, they immediately, when I say that, will immediately say, if I do that, I, I might get the crack kick out, kicked out. Mm-hmm. That tells you everything you need to know. Absolutely. Because narcissists, they don't respect boundaries. They don't think that the rules apply to them. So self-love is very self-empowering. In a healthy relationship, when you set boundaries, they respect it. People like boundaries. They like knowing what to expect. It makes your relationship better in a healthy relationship. In a, in a toxic or narcissistic relationship, it actually makes it worse. And for a lot of people, even the thought of it makes them feel like they're walking on eggshells and gives them a lot of anxiety, gives them a lot of panic. That That is a real telltale sign. Another uh, example is that that they just don't take any responsibility for anything bad that, that happens in the relationship. Another thing is that I, quite often I'll talk to people and oftentimes they'll, they'll, they may have been married for 10, 20 years. And I'll ask them, when you guys have disagreements, who's getting in the way all the time, right? Or when's the last time that you got your way in any disagreement? In a healthy relationship, it should be somewhat balanced, even with someone that is a little bit more domineering, someone who is a little bit more charismatic. They have a level of empathy to be able to say, like, you know what, I, I can see see where you're coming from, things like that. With the narcissist, no, it's my way all the time, every single time. And even in times where you did, where they did give into whatever it is that, that you wanted with whatever disagreement, there's a consequence for that. And people typically know that, that yes, if I get my way in this, that there's a penalty. I'm going to have to pay the price for this. Right. And there's there's almost like a fear that that uh, that comes for that from that. Another big one is the feeling of walking on eggshells constantly. Right. That I can't do anything right. This typically speaks to being with someone who's always creating a double bind that doesn't matter what you do. It's the wrong decision. And it's followed up with repetitive criticism. You know, a lot of times that finding out if you're with a narcissist or not really has little less to do with them and more with how you feel about the relationship, your past, if you've had past trauma, past childhood uh, issues, grew up with a narcissist or grew up with in a, a home where there was a lot of abuse or drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And so those are those are some of the some of the big signs. So when when someone starts to try to set these, I'm gonna say healthy boundaries, because there are boundaries that aren't healthy even in dealing with a narcissist. When they set those boundaries in, in my experience, they will, if dealing with a true narcissist, they will then experience one of two things, which would be gaslighting or love bombing. So can you kind of explain what that is, uh, especially in gaslighting, because I think there's a lot of misinformation about what that really actually is. Yeah, there, there definitely is a lot of misinformation. A lot of times people think gaslighting is just when the other person disagrees with you. That's not true. You know, I actually don't like the term gaslighting. I like the original term, which is called crazy making. Absolutely. I think that, apply, that applies and it fits better. It makes more sense for the general public. Gaslighting is when someone is trying to recreate a new narrative and trying to spin something uh, in, into their favor. Quite often in a healthy relationship, when two people disagree, no one's confused. Everyone gets it. You might disagree. You guys, it might even get escalated, might get heated, but no one is confused. And when you're being gaslit, you're confused. All of a sudden the story is spinning. Even if you are, even if you know that the person did something wrong, 
all of a sudden you, you find yourself being the one that's apologizing for something that you didn't do. Maybe you, you found or caught them cheating or talking to someone else or doing something inappropriate. And instead of, and when you confront them about it, instead of them apologizing, instead of them accepting responsibility, all of a sudden the narrative spins to, well, you shouldn't have gone through my phone. Well, you shouldn't have been snooping. You shouldn't, that's, those are some forms of gaslighting. But gaslighting, it extends far beyond just the two people communicating. Uh, I talked to someone yesterday, uh, it's, you know, narcissists will move things, they will hide things, hide some of your possessions, make you feel like you are always constantly misplacing things and, you know, hey, where, what did I do with my keys? Oh, you never put them in the right spot, right? There's so many things that we talk about that, that are on the forefront with narcissists that we forget to talk about the things that they do that are kind of behind the scenes that, that we don't think about as well. I've kind of explained in a very simple way that gaslighting is when the narcissist causes some kind of infraction, uh, we can use infidelity. And then when they're called on it, they say, well, if you had done this, I wouldn't have to do that. Right. And so then the, the responsibility is transferred off of them onto the victim. Okay. So that's gaslighting or crazy making, which I prefer the crazy making definition too. As a matter of fact, I have a good friend who's a psychologist and he's in his seventies and I was talking to him about gaslighting. He goes, what is gaslighting? And I was like, oh, crazy making. He was like, oh, okay. You know, and so it, it was kind of uh, different there. But so if they're not gaslighting and these boundaries, there could be love bombing. So kind of walk through what that is. One of the things I like to talk about with love bombing is that the very beginning stages when you very first get with a narcissist, they are the most charming, elegant person that you have ever met, right? Um, there's a lot of components of addiction that, that happen with, with uh, narcissism. So what happens is all of a sudden when you catch them in a lie, when you catch them with doing something bad and maybe you even have one foot out the door, all of a sudden they, they go back to showing elements of what you knew of them in the beginning. You know, going the, the perfect dates, the great sex, the great vacations, all of a sudden they will bring up, you know, the if you're engaged or if you're married, like, um, I can't believe you're really gonna throw away everything that I've done for you, play, uh, making you feel guilty. But it also can show up as, you know what? You know what we need? We just need to go on a vacation. We just need, you know what? We just need something to bring us together. Like uh, they might even try to have a baby or that whatever the next step in that relationship is. Or buy a house. Or buy a house. Yep. And uh, or buy another car or whatever. And, <clears throat> and what happens through this love bomb process for the victim, it seems like this person is taking things more serious. What's actually happening is that they're actually creating more enmeshment. It's more difficult to leave the relationship once you're engaged, once you're married, once you buy the house, once you buy cars, um, all of a sudden, um, you know, they want to have a baby all of a sudden, those sorts of things. There's a lot of reason why a lot, a lot of victims have, you know, several, you know, there's nothing wrong with having multiple kids, but four, five, six, seven children, right? Because every time that there was something that was hap that, that's happened, right, they love bombed the victim into having another kid to make it more difficult for that person to leave. Yeah. And then when they walk away, they say, so you're going to walk away from our eight month year old baby or, exactly. or our brand new house. And typically when, in my experience, and 
Uh, I have very little experience with narcissism compared to what you have. But typically, like when they do buy a house or they do buy a new vehicle or they go on a vacation, they are buying things that are way more expensive than one of them could handle on their own mm -hmm. in order to make them feel like they are contractually obligated to this relationship. The obligation goes to the, the fog method that I talk about quite often, fear, obligation, and guilt. And this is, um, you know, the three components that lead up to emotional blackmail. What happens is, you know, now all of a sudden I'm afraid that I can't, and they'll throw this into your face as well. Like how you want to leave. Okay. Then, um, let me see how you can even afford this house. And I gave you everything. How are you going to afford to take care of the children? What is that fear? you know, making you feel like you're obligated to take care of everything. You're, you're supposed to be, you know, I thought you were supposed to be uh, this perfect spouse where, you know, we, you know, we said these vows in front of our church. And so what is that uh, making you feel obligated to stay, you know, or guilty, you know, after all the things I've done for you, you're going to treat me like this. And it plays, you know, when we talk about narcissism, we also have to talk about codependency and the childhood wounds within the victim as well, because, these tactics quite often were played out in that in the in the victim's childhood as well. So when someone does fear, obligation, and guilt, it rings really deep with that person. They don't like people being upset with them. You know, they typically um, fall into this people-pleasing method of, you know, just whatever it takes to get this person off my back. I don't like feeling guilty. I don't like feeling shame about the things that I've done. You know, so whatever I can do to get this person off my back, but it you're really enabling the behavior and it really just gets worse over time. Absolutely. So one of the biggest questions that I'm asked from TikTok and Instagram when it comes to narcissism is narcissism, a genetic inherited, or is it conditioning from another narcissist? And my answer has always been yes. Yeah. So you, you I think if you talk to 10 different, 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers. I lean more towards nurture than I do nature, but I do agree and I do understand that there's a very strong arg argument for nature. You know, at this point, we do know that narcissists breed other narcissists, but it's still debatable on whether it is nature versus nurture. I still lean more towards nurture. I think that, you know, I, I've, I just feel like the, the studies are, are a little bit more profound towards that. I can acknowledge that I think that there might be like a, a bit of a precursor that, you know, you could be born with, you know, if someone is not nurtured properly, right, that it could turn into and turn into narcissism. Sure. So a child who is raised by the by a narcissist is going to turn out to be one of three things, a narcissist, a victim of an adult relationship of narcissism or a very healthy person who knows strict, strict boundaries. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, that's a generalized blanket statement, but not really. I mean, when you look at somebody who is the, the offspring of a narcissist, that that's the one of three choices. Yep. You said something just a little bit earlier about uh, when, when we got into uh, love bombing is that when 
it all starts to fall apart again, they may use the the guilt of, well, you made these vows before the church. And uh, uh, some of your recent videos have been about uh, narcissism and the church. And, you know, as a, as a counselor, as a Baptist preacher, I have seen this a lot. And I, I really think... I, I'm not trying to take up for my fellow pastors by any means, but I have always said, while pastoral counseling is appropriate, if you are not trained to help certain situations, you don't need to be doing it because you can do more harm than good. When when we start getting into a narcissist relationship, I would dare say that over half of narcissists are church-going people. There's a lot. and yeah, there's it, a lot. And some of those are people in positions of authority within the church. And even I have seen narcissistic pastors who control their congregation in such a way that you would see a narcissistic parent. I know of a, a preacher. I'm not going to say that I was ever in his church, wink, wink. But he was so in-depth that... If you were going to buy a car, you need to come talk to him about it before you did it. And I'm going, what does that have to do with the church? You know, what does that have to do? So tell me a little bit about how how you wrap that all together uh, within the church. Some of it, uh, personal experience, uh, like you, I've seen a lot of, uh, so I grew up, um, I grew up in, in the church as well. And so um you know, at one point in time, I considered becoming a pastor as well. And um, I just saw a lot of things. Right. And when when I started studying this and when I started to do more research, you know, you, you kind of put the pieces together. There's a lot, you know, and when we talk about narcissistic mass, because that's that's how they get away with a lot of the things that they do is uh, creating this image that everything is everything is good, that on the surface, everything's all right. And then behind closed doors, they can be a complete monster where there is no better mask that they can wear than a religious mask, right? Um, Christianity of, you know, oh, no, I, me do that? I'm a pastor. Are you kidding me? Like, I, I could never, right? And, and so it uh, paints this image of, of innocence to... Uh, a group of people. And one of the things that, that people don't talk about enough with narcissists is that they don't abuse tons and tons of people necessarily. They abuse just a, a handful of people. So if you have someone that is a pastor or in some sort of leadership position in the church, and the church absolutely loves this person, loves their charisma, loves the way they speak and they're eloquent, eloquent very well-versed with, with uh, biblical knowledge, and they're a monster to their family behind closed doors, the first thing that they're going to say to their victim is, this is your problem, right? Everyone else loves me, mm-hmm. right? And this becomes a part of the gaslighting that, that the victim becomes a part of, well, yeah, everyone else does love them. Maybe this is my problem. Maybe I'm the, I am the only one that sees this. Maybe I'm the one pushing their buttons to, to do these things. Um, but they also can be abusive and very controlling to the congregation and to their members and to other other people as well. They'll, they'll use, you know, the Bible as uh, as a weapon instead of a tool for for healing and for uh, for direction. Exactly what you said, like, uh, you know, I've seen everything from things what you're talking about. Come talk to me for every single decision that you make. There was a church that I knew of that did what they called pastor's provision, 
which is basically the pastor's list, grocery list, and they wanted the congregation to buy all of his groceries. A lot of times people think that I'm, I'm anti-church, I'm anti-religion. I'm, I'm absolutely not. I think that church can be a great form of community and great foundational piece for people, especially when someone is trying to heal, especially when someone is has left their family and has had some struggles with, uh, with toxic relationships. However, you have to be careful. A lot of times when you go into a church and you begin to serve, and I, I'm a big, I agree with serving, I agree with volunteering, but I taught, for example, I taught someone a couple of weeks ago and she described it as I'm exhausted, mm-hmm. right? I'm there all day, every day. That's not, that's no longer volunteering. That's free labor. Absolutely. And when, when we kind of dove deeper into that, she said, I'm, I'm afraid that the church won't function, you know, if, uh, if I don't do these things, these are the things that, that, sh- that was manipulated into her to make her feel going back to fear, obligation, and guilt obligated to give free labor, mm-hmm. right? Her kids were there. Her, she was feeding her kids at the church. She basically lived at the church and was paying, you know, and was, was paying bills and was basically given free labor, you know, and these are the type of things that, you know, if you're not careful, if you don't begin to set boundaries, you know, you, you can be taken advantage of by a narcissist in the church. Yeah. I, uh, uh one of the big things that pastors use sometimes and and i don't know that they necessarily realize what they're saying but when a woman comes in and my husband's controlling me he's doing this he's doing that they fall back on ephesians chapter 5 well Mm -hmm. you're supposed to submit to your husband Uh, but if you read the rest of that chapter it says that you're to submit to your husbands but husbands you are to love your wife in the way that christ loved the church well what did christ do for the church he gave his life Right. for the church. That's not a, I'm better than you and I'm going to rule and reign over you. That is that I love you so much that I'm going to provide anything that I can for you unto death. Right. But a lot of times that gets misconstrued in that, well, it doesn't matter if he's controlling. You have made a vow to God, you have made a vow to him, and you are supposed to submit to him no matter what. And that is so far from the truth, not just scripturally, but psychologically and within mental health that 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 could do so much damage. And I have heard, I've not personally had this issue, thank God, uh, but I have heard where pastors have given that kind of advice and the wife has gone home and committed suicide because Mm -hmm. she can't keep that obligation anymore. And the suicide rate amongst uh, narcissist victims are very high mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they really do feel like, well, maybe I am the problem. Right. And, and that's not the case. But if you're feeling that from your husband and then you feel it from your pastor, right? how could you not be the problem? You're being told by two people. And the congregation, because what happens quite often is that people, when they're looking for validation, they will look to other, look to their circle. Well, the problem with narcissism is that they make a very big world feel very, very small. So the only people in your group, the only people that are in your circle are going to be people who live the life and agree with the things that, that the narcissist are, are, are doing. 
And so you're going to go to your friends and they're going to say all the same things. You just need to submit. You just need to do this. You just need to do that. And, it's, and, and so you're hearing the same thing from every single person. And sometimes you, people don't even realize that the narcissist has, has been literally putting in little seeds of doubt with every single person Absolutely. Uh, in your circle, right? Going to them. I don't know what's going on with my wife. I don't know what's going on with my husband. I think they're depressed, right? And just that alone, right? And then they let their own thoughts circle. And then the person, the victim goes to these exact friends, right? I don't know what's going on with my marriage, right? Well, I think you're just depressed. And all of a sudden, you're, that person is echoing the same exact words that the narcissist has been echoing the entire time, mm-hmm. right? They'll do this with your friends. They'll do this with your family, you know, anyone who they can get, who they feel like they can. And this is, these, these are tactics of someone that's a, that would be a covert narcissist. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the seeds of doubt that they plant are going to be uh, systematically and purposely planted in particular people that they know you're going to go to and say, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not just going to throw the seed out there and let it fall. It's going to be very intentional in, in who they talk to. And so you, you use the word covert narcissist. Kind of tell me what, what that is. Explain to our listeners. So we, we have, um, there's different types of narcissists. Um, I would say two major ones. Um, but uh, so we have an overt narcissist who is what we call the classic narcissist who um, loves, all narcissists love being the center of attention, but this is very clear. They like being the center of attention. Uh, one of the, the key factors that I, that I tell people is that uh, with an overt narcissist, they like to be um, a part of the drama. The, you know where this drama started. With a covert narcissist, they like being a, they like starting the drama, but they don't like it. They don't like being you knowing that it was them. This is the rumor spreader. This is the one that is just going around, uh, like we were talking about, just laying seeds of doubt. Mm-hmm. You, as the victim, may know where, after you kind of know, understand narcissism a little bit more, you may know where people got this information from. Right. Right. But you, it, it, it's very difficult to kind of convince and try to allow for people to see that, you know, you're really getting some bad information from this person. They're just literally just giving you seeds of doubt and creating this narrative in your head. Right. So covert narcissist, I kind of explain is that they're the person that says, hey, let's you and him fight. They're the Mm -hmm. agitator, the instigator. And then they like to just sit back and watch the drama unfold. Mm -hmm. But if you really begin to investigate you always see that it always comes back to that one person. And it may not even really be a person that you're in a relationship with. It may just be somebody who knows that you're susceptible to this kind of abuse and that you just you just take it, you know, and and go on. I have two ladies in my church that uh, which we have a mixed congregation um and and they are African American ladies mm-hmm. that came to my church and they had been a member of another church, an African-American church, and they had actually been put out of the church, publicly dismissed from the church for not paying their tithe. That is such a narcissistic view. Now, I personally believe that you're to give your 10%. I believe that's scriptural, but there is some aspects of where you could say that 
if if you're living beyond your means, that that's not possible. That you've got to take care of yourself. You know, you you can't not eat and pay your tithe. Um, you know, there there comes that point. But they every Sunday will not put their offering in the offering plate. They will bring it to me so that I and I'm going. That's between you and God. That's not. But I have found that, and I'm going to very carefully say this, and and you can correct me if if I'm wrong or out of order here. But I find that that narcissism in the church is much more prevalent in the African American churches, at least in my area of the world, than than I have seen in in not saying that it doesn't exist in the white church or a mixed church, but it just does seem like there's a lot more control within the African American religion and community. Um, I think it shows up differently. Mm -hmm. I think there's more, I think in the, in the uh, African American church, there is a lot of elements of, uh, of control in a predominantly white church. It shows up differently in terms of a lot more manipulation and a lot more um it's control but um more like um, like group control like a, there you go <laughs> and, yeah. and not just one individual right yeah you know um keeping up with a certain standard keeping up with a certain a certain image it's a lot more subtle but i've definitely at least from people that that, that i work with you know I, i've definitely i've seen it literally all across the board from uh, african-americans to Mormons to, um, it, you know, uh, it, it really, you know, I, I talk often from a Christian standpoint, just because I, I um, just, that's just how I grew up. Narcissists use religion as a whole, mm-hmm. right? And so it really, um, it might show up differently in different, different cultures, different, um, but you can see it literally all over the place. And, and even vary by denomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm a, I'm a big believer in that as a pastor of the church I'm not an employee so you're not supposed to be telling me what to do mm-hmm. but I am a servant to the church. I work at the the liberty of the church and at the end of the day the church has all the authority. And I think scripturally as a New Testament church that's the way it was set up. But in some other denominations where there is a presbytery or uh, a false illusion of how deaconship works, there is more of that overt narcissism as opposed to in in some other congregations where it's completely covert. I mean, just back and forth. So what do we do? What do we do when we're in a church that historically our families have grown up in that church and everything's going on, and now we find ourselves a victim of of narcissistic abuse from from leadership or even other parishioners in the church? One of the things I tell people who are involved in the church, um, and I'm, I'm going to speak from a you know, Christian standpoint, I mean, the whole goal is to become more like Christ. He made it very clear what he came to do. He made it very clear that he's here to liberate, that he's here to free people, that he's here to set people, set people free from bondage. So if your church makes you feel like you're in more bondage, mm-hmm. right, and if you feel like you can't speak up for yourself, Right. If you feel like you you um, that is uncomfortable to set a boundary to say no, I you know um, I can serve on Monday and Wednesday this week. I can't serve all five days this week. 
and without getting pushback, without getting, even if that church has been, you've been going to that church for decades, for generations, things like that, maybe, right, it's time to start looking at the fact that God has called you to potentially break a generational curse mm. of narcissism, of, of being a people pleaser, of not setting boundaries. And you can begin to look, you know, like I said earlier, narcissists do a good job of making a very big world feel very small. One of the things that that provides the healing is making that small world look very big again, right? So getting an outside perspective, talking to other people from other churches, talking to other people from other backgrounds, other, you know, you you can even really have to step outside of your faith if you don't want to, but I encourage people to, Mm-hmm. Right. You want to you want to step outside because if you are only getting it from this um, small bubble, what is that? That's that's a cult. Right. If you're only getting everything from the same place every single time, just like a healthy marriage. Right. You ha- you should have a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of support. Same thing in the church. You should be able to comfortably without pushback, talk to other people, talk to other pastors, get, get an outsider's perspective on what's happening inside. I tell people a lot that when they are dealing with these situations that they need to remember that churches are like restaurants. You're not always going to like their food. But when it comes to the point of where you're getting food poisoning every time you go, you might want to look for another restaurant. Right. And in the church, you know, there are glorious additions, but there are sacramental subtractions. Mm-hmm. And that there are some people that things are just better when they leave. And and we don't like, as, as pastors, as religious people, we don't like to see people leave the church. But in the same way of someone who's in a narcissistic relationship, there comes a point in time where you just have to say enough is enough and and walk away. But even in even in that, there are some churches that if a pastor found out that you went and talked to another pastor— Man, you would be segregated in a moment, mm-hmm. you know, and downtrodden, and you have betrayed the church. You have done all that. And when you start hearing that kind of verbiage, that should be the telltale sign that it's it's time to leave. You know, it's it's time to go. When you're dealing with uh, someone you, you believe is narcissistic, like that's one of the telltale signs, especially in the church. You should, good, healthy pastors, they're not forcing you to stay there, mm-hmm. right? They actually right. encourage you to get the get other views and to um, and that's how it should be. Is you know, hey, no, talk, you know, talk, listen to this guy too. Listen, and they may even give you other resources. Absolutely, right? and 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 uh, and that helps strengthen because what are they doing? Their, their intention is to empower you, mm-hmm. right? Narcissists overall, there's a constant over evaluation of themselves and a constant devaluation of everybody else. And so when you have a pastor that is constantly trying to hold you back, don't talk to other pastors, you know, this church is the church that has all of the anointing and God speaks to me and no other pastor in the area, things like that, uh, or anything along those lines, right? You have a problem. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, one thing that I, I kind of catch flack for, I guess, in, in some churches that I've pastored is I have never asked someone to join the church ever, Mm -hmm. because I don't want them to feel like I am making them make a decision. And even when people visit and they say, hey, we're looking for a new church, I say, well, 
I'm going to pray that God shows you what church that is instead of saying to them, well, this would be a wonderful fit for you because it may not be. And I don't want to be perceived as the person who is trying to control you or tell you what you're supposed to do. Uh, another thing that I say, and, and, and this is kind of follows this narcissistic tendency is that God's not going to tell me to tell you to do something before he tells you to do it. Exactly. You know, and, and I think that a lot of church people get caught up in, well, God told them that I should do this. So I probably should do it. Uh, and that's just not the way it works. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, yes, it is important to be consistent and to have structure and things like that. But even with church, you should feel free to come and go as you please. Absolutely. Right? If you don't feel if you don't feel free, if you feel like there's going to be something something terrible that's going to happen, that everyone's going to get on your case if you miss a Sunday or if you're not there. It's one thing like people are checking on you just because they care and they want to make sure you're not you're, that you're feeling well, things like that. But when it gets to a point where you feel like there's there's an overall overall demand, mm -hmm. right? That if you leave, if you that that, that all hell is going to break loose and we have a problem. Absolutely. I, I actually had a woman not too long ago join the church and she come and met with me before she ever even approached the subject. And she asked me very bluntly, she said, if I miss two Sundays in a row, are you going to show up at my house and ask me why I've not come? And I'm going, no, I might text you and ask you if you've been sick or if everything's okay, if there's something that you need from me, but no, I'm not going to say, why have you not been here or tell you that you need to do this or that? And she was like, okay, because the last church that I was at, if I didn't show up for Sunday school, they were at my doorstep wanting to know why I wasn't there. And if it, the excuse wasn't good enough, then I was chastised for it. And I'm going, that is not how this works. Mm -hmm. But we get into such a place of where we feel that it's normal. And I think yeah. that even victims of, of narcissistic relationships get in a point where they feel that it's normal. And then something happens and it's like a light switch goes off and they realize this is not normal, nor has it ever been normal. When we talk about narcissistic, there's narcissism. You know, there's a, um, you know, there's a cycle that you go through of love bomb, devaluation, then discard that still holds true with the church too, mm -hmm. right? There's a love bomb phase where in the beginning, no one can do anything wrong. Everything's perfect, right? And then all of a sudden the devaluation happens. And um, there's a person that did a video that, uh, that, um, that I shared on TikTok a few weeks ago. And that she illustrated it beautifully without even knowing, knowing it, that she visited a church, you know, she was there for, uh, let's say a year, two years, and everyone loved on her. Everyone treated her well, treated her with respect. Then COVID hit and they had a small group and she was the only one that showed up with a mask mm -hmm. and they chastised her for it, you know, and said things like, if you, you know, if you don't take off your mask then you don't have, you don't really trust God and, and those sorts of things. And, you know, these, these type of things, 100, not only can they happen in the church, uh, but it's literally the same exact cycle of love bomb, devalue, discard. Absolutely. And I hate like more than, and you know, we're not really supposed to use the word hate, but man, I hate when somebody says, all you need to do is trust God. 
Yeah. If you go to the doctor and your blood pressure is high, yeah. then just trust God. I don't know why you went to the doctor to begin with. And our mental health is no different. Our mental health is our physical health. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't take off my glasses and go driving. You know, yeah, I trust right. God, exactly. but I'm not taking off my glasses right. and going driving. I don't driving. want to see him yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, well, I, I appreciate you uh, coming on our podcast today and uh, appreciate your perspective. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So uh, just to send us off here, if you could give one piece of advice to a church member or a uh, victim of narcissism in a relationship to try to help them to see that this is not normal, what would that one piece of advice be? Uh, by far and away, it would be to uh, insert self-love, begin speaking up for yourself, setting and enforcing boundaries. People who are healthy will respect it. I can't stress that enough. People who do not, you will close to immediately. So earlier you said that people will love bomb and uh, narcissists will love bomb. And I forgot the other, other thing. The other thing, there's a third one that they do is they'll get angry, mm -hmm. right? And you'll see it start to come through, they will get very angry. People who are toxic, people who are narcissistic, they do not like boundaries. And, and when you begin to speak up for yourself, you'll see that become very clear, right? All of a sudden you're in inconvenience, all of a sudden, you know, for some people that can be very scary, right? So if it's something that, if, if setting boundaries of speaking up for yourself is uh, scary to you, I would encourage you to, to you know, um, talk to someone who is well-versed with it so you can kind of learn how to do it, to kind of do it with the safety net. And by far and away, I would say to begin speaking out for yourself. Absolutely. Matt, it's good to have you with us again, uh, as I said. And uh, we thank our listeners for listening today. Make sure to check out our Patreon where we have exclusive content there. And, uh, of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts at BeFrankNetwork.com. Uh, Matt, how can we find you? Find me um, on all social media platforms, uh, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can go to my website, MattPfeifferCoaching.com. And, and then YouTube as well. So Matt Pfeiffer coaching on YouTube. All right. And we'll have all of his links in the description of this podcast. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media links are at the bottom of that website. Once again, Doc Talks is a part of Be Frank Network. We thank you for listening to us today, and we hope that you have a great week. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>